When you're faced with the unknown, you need to know how you will respond. You can't simply react or, or hope that you respond in the correct way. You need to know how you will respond when you're facing uncertainty or facing the unknown. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I'm really excited about this episode's guest, and she has such a fascinating background. Lorraine Kwai was an undercover and counterintelligence FBI agent for 24 years. She exposed foreign spies and recruited them to work for the U.S. government. During her time as an FBI agent, she developed the mental toughness to survive in environments of risk, uncertainty, and deception. As a former FBI agent, she speaks and consults on how to develop mental toughness to create breakthroughs in business and life. She offers no-nonsense FBI practices to help others develop the mental strength to manage their emotions, behavior, and thinking so they can set themselves up for success. Her clients are diverse, but they share the same desire to empower themselves to build the mental strength needed to keep moving forward toward their goals and calling in life. Their shared belief is that they have the power within themselves to achieve greater personal accomplishments. She is the author of Mental Toughness for Women, 52 Tips to Recognize and Utilize Your Greatest Strengths, and Secrets of a Strong Mind. Lorraine, thank you so much for being on the show. Dr. Richard, it is so exciting to be here. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. Your background is so interesting. Not everybody is a spy. I mean, it almost sounds like in in reading your bio, like there could be movies made about some of your adventures, which I hope you'll share with us a little bit today. But I want to kind of go back to the beginning because most people, when they're young, don't say to themselves, you know, I'd like to be a spy when when I grew up. How did that path unfold for you? Well, that's a great question. I was born and raised on a cattle ranch uh, in the middle of Wyoming, and uh, I had absolutely no idea or any thought of becoming an FBI agent when I grew up. But you know how you always hear people say, you know, do what do what you love to do, right? So I'm thinking, here I am. I'm a female. I love to shop. So when I graduated, when I got out of um, college, I had a, a dual degree in marketing and ma- um, management. So I thought, you know, I'm going to become a, a buyer at a department store. That is going to be my thing. That's where my passion is. So I, I, I did become a buyer. And within just a couple of years, it became very apparent to me that this, call, this, this vocation had no calling for me. I mean, it, I had no sense of 
of value or meaning from it. And I sort of started languishing. It was one of these things where, you know, I'd only been out of school for a couple of years and already I hit a, a, a wall. So I went back to school to get my master's degree and the FBI came on campus and they started and I said, why not? Even though I grew up on a cattle ranch, I'd never shot a gun in my life. And I said, well, why not? This could be entertaining. And so I get in there and they hear my story. I mean, they know I'm not some pampered, entitled kid who expects the world handed to her. Everything I ever got in life, I had to work for. And they liked that scrappiness. They liked that hungry, gritty attitude I had. And within six months, I was in the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. So, you know, I, and I, there's just this academy full of ex-military and police types and law enforcement types and mostly men in my class. You know, one guy to my my right stands up and said he was with special forces uh, in, in Northern Africa working terrorists. And a guy to my left stood up and said he was a state trooper in New Jersey and had, had just survived a lot of shootouts. And then I stood up and I said I was a buyer at a fancy department store. And I mean, everybody just turned to get a look at the fluff ball that had accidentally gotten into the FBI. So it was sort of at that point, I I said, you know, this is something I I want to do. I want to do something with my life that uh, is more than just selling striped blouses rather than polka dots for a season. And I felt like the FBI was the right place for me. And indeed it was. It's really wild because it, it sounds like, um, if I understood, you you were getting your master's, but not specifically to do this. The FBI just happened to be on campus one day and really a whole new path opened up for you. That's exactly right. I never did finish my master's. I was only, I was less than a semester away, but it was like, if you want to do this, we are calling you now. And by the way, the next class is in January on the East Coast. So that's where we expect you to be. And I said, sure. What did your family think when you went from doing what you were doing and then announcing that you were joining the FBI? What what was the reaction? Like so many people, all they knew about the FBI is what they saw on TV. I mean, Efren Zemblis Jr. and the FBI story. I mean, that's all they knew. And so they, they really had no concept of what my life would be. So it was, it was, but it was an education for them and for me, because in a lot of ways, I didn't know what I'd be doing in the FBI either. The Bureau likes to, uh, they like to just throw you in and see how you scramble to get back to the surface. And um, that determines a great deal of where you end up. And if the, those who are like the more complicated, the more sophisticated type of cases will then go to either counterintelligence or um, some of our organized crime cases or some of our cyber cases. And then there are those that like the reactive. So there's, there's a little something for everyone. As you were doing this and starting to enter it, you said you didn't even quite know where you'd wind up in the FBI. Did you have any thoughts? Did you have any ideas as to what you might want to do in the FBI? And then how did that change once you started actually training? I had no idea. And part of the academy is, is training you in all the areas that you could end up. And as a new agent, they they put you in to, well, each office is different, but a lot of times you'll be working uh, criminal, then you'll be working organized crime, then you'll be working maybe security matters and maybe uh, 
uh, technology. And so it, they, but they do that on purpose. So you can kind of get a feel and supervisors watch and you have your reviews and by your input and the input of the supervisors and other management, uh, people have a pretty good idea of where they're going to fit in or not. And when I first went in, I was working criminal, uh, criminal matters, um, and I loved it. I thought that's where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. We were making arrests and, you know, I mean, taking people who who were, you know, child molesters or kidnapping kids to go into prostitution rings. I mean, that was the kind of stuff I was working when I first my first office. And I'm thinking, this is what I want to do. I want to make an impact. And then my second office, I got assigned to a counterintelligence. And then I was just hooked. I, I loved the idea. I understood that the enemy we were working against was a much different, more sophisticated type of enemy rather than the, the kidnapper or the organized crime guy. They're as dangerous, if not more dangerous in some ways, but what was going on in counterintelligence was very intriguing, and I liked that. So what, what year was that when you started doing the counterintelligence work? Probably the mid-80s, late-80s. Okay, so Libya notwithstanding, relatively speaking, a peaceful time for America. Uh, actually, this was when uh, it was a peaceful time for America. However, uh, we Russia was our number one target. I mean, this would this was the decade of the spies, where they had recruited uh, Eldrick Ames and a, a lot of American intelligence officers, and so uh, Russia was making a very concerted and hard push against American intelligence officials and had with some success, unfortunately. So it was the FBI's primary number one target. It was counterintelligence. It wasn't uh, organized crime or cyber. At that time, cyber really wasn't that important. Or terrorism, those are things that came later. But at that time, counterintelligence and Soviet Union and Russia were the number one target. Right. So essentially, even though our troops weren't really mobilizing terribly frequently at that time, we were still knee deep in the Cold War, which you were at the front lines of. Exactly. It is exactly right. So what kind of things, as much as you're able to speak about them, uh, could you give us examples of what sort of activities you would do involved in counterintelligence and during the Cold War? Well, you know, this is the thing when I talk to executives now, I talk to leaders, uh, there, there's, there's always change in the air. There's always how to manage change or how to ha- execute change without, you know, negative behavior being a part of it. And I, I always say, you know, no FBI agent was ever given a case where there was a clear answer. I mean, it wouldn't be an investigation if it was, right? So, I mean, we get these cases with the sole intention of, like, looking at them from all angles. And if one approach doesn't work, you know what? We don't give up. We, we try something else. And I could give a, a, a good example, if you want me to, to, to do that, about it wasn't counterintelligence, but it was when I was working against um, criminal matters in my first office. Sure, please. You know, I will say one thing. Only four-letter word I never heard in the FBI was can't. Because there is no such thing as walking up to a parent of a child who has gone missing and say, gosh, this is just, I can't do this. This is just too hard. I just can't find an answer. I mean, you don't 
do that. You, you work until you find the child. And so we did have a, a child who was kidnapped and uh, I was not the case agent, but I was working with the case agent because it was, it was my first office and he was my training agent. So we, we, we followed up on every lead. I mean, it got to the point where we just, we just didn't know what to do, but we never stopped. And at one point then, I mean, we were just sort of brainstorming on what we could do. So we got a photo of the kid and we started just going from business to business, door to door, showing photos of the, the people, the photos of this kid. And we, it was a large city. So we, we branched out and lo and behold, one shop, a shopkeeper said, you know, that kid does look familiar. And so we said, great, who is he with? And the guy couldn't really remember the face of the individual so much, but he had this really strange looking t-shirt with this very weird emblem on it. So we got a sketch artist to, you know, do a, do a rendering of it. And then we started calling all the t-shirt stores in this city. And it wasn't a town, it was a city. And lo and behold, there were only maybe four or five stores that, that actually stocked that shirt, that T-shirt. And of course, we couldn't be sure if it was bought in that city, but it turned out it was. So we went down there and we said, okay, um, does this look like the guy or does this look like the kid who was with him? Anyway, bottom line is we were able to track that guy's contact information through his credit card. And so then we went out. And we found that little boy. And the thing there was, we, he was just hours from being shipped off into some child prostitution ring uh, in Asia. So, I mean, when it comes down to like looking for the, an answer when times are tough or when the answer is not obvious, it's, it, it's like you have persistence. That's part of what mental toughness is. You just keep at it until you find the soft underbelly. And if you want it badly enough, You'll find it. I mean, there is nothing we would do. You just don't go back to parents and say, I'm sorry, can't do it. Of course. that That's such a powerful story. And as you said, it really speaks to the tenacity that you have to have in the FBI or that you stated you have to have in the FBI. So that's an awesome story for sure. But in terms of counterintelligence, so that that's where you spent the bulk of your career. Yes. The FBI has jurisdiction within the United States. So my job was to identify foreign spies who were sent to the United States to spy against the United States government. So I stayed primarily within the United States. Okay. When foreign agents, foreign spies come to the United States, they're looking to find political information, uh, military, and um, economic those are the three primary areas that a foreign government is going to target in the United States. So we sort of have clusters. We know that think tanks are important because um, every administration will actually give experts in different fields secret clearances so that they can help inform foreign policy. If there's a summit, same thing. These experts are called in. So they clearly have their ear to the ground of, of foreign policy. And 
This is important to a foreign government. Very important. Economic reasons, I, I mean, San Francisco, that should be obvious. I mean, China stole most of the technology that's running this, that country today. So that was a big effort on our part. And then, you know, just by and large military, that's an obvious target for almost any foreign country that's a hostile intelligence service is after that makes perfect sense. And what I was going to ask you was that I presume that as part of your training in the FBI, you, know, you spoke of the mental toughness that that a spy is trained to resist if they're caught, you know, leaking information or you know exposing their own secrets. So if you identify a foreign agent, how did you go about not only getting them? to, or identifying them, I should say, but how do you go about then getting them to come over to our side? How did that happen? That's a long process. And these cases I worked on were several years in the making. Um, so you're right. Uh, foreign spies do not come with a, a rubber stamp uh, that indicates that they are a foreign intelligence officer. So in the United States, in most countries, this is pretty much worldwide, uh, a lot of Hostile intelligence officers, that's what we call them, hostile intelligence officers, will come in through the diplomatic uh, circuit. Because as a diplomat, they cannot ever, they cannot be arrested for, for anything. I mean, they could shoplift. They can do anything. They cannot be arrested because they have diplomatic immunity. So they like taking advantage of that. If they get caught, they're not going to be arrested. They're simply going to be sent back to whatever country they came from and persona non grata. PNG, which means they can never come back. So that's one way that foreign intelligence officers come into the United States. The other way is, and I don't know if you've ever watched The Americans, it's an awesomely accurate uh, TV show, but it's through the illegal program or the non-official cover. And they are in this country on their own. So they are much harder to identify simply because we don't know. I mean, they come in, they've got they have no accent. They have uh, a, a legend or a history of backstopping that is, unless you looked at it very closely, no one would ever know. So those are the two ways that the intelligence officers will come into this country. So I worked primarily against those attached to diplomats because that's where most of them are. And even in the TV show, The Americans, the, 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 the consulate there, the embassy is the one that actually has oversight into what's going on. So, and since that's where the big cheeses are, that's what I worked. And it is difficult. And I, I always talk to people, when I stop, start talking about mental toughness, I say, you know what the most important thing? It is um, having emotional intelligence. And in fact, I would say emotional competency because we could we know people who are intelligent, but not, not, not necessarily competent, right? So for that reason, I always worked towards the empathy, self-awareness, trying to get to understand people, understanding myself so I could understand others. And I would go out there and talk to people. I would go out there and talk to the officials if I could. Uh, and that's when I would be in an undercover capacity and try to learn from them, try to find out what was important to them, what, what, what would push their buttons, uh, what triggered them, uh, all those things. So that was sort of what I, that's how I would approach a person. And, and it's a slow process. And I would work to get informants uh, around these different people and uh, they would report to me. And basically you start with a personality assessment. 
You have to have a personality assessment so that you know what you're dealing with and you know what that person's priorities are, what makes that person tick. So, and and I could talk to you certainly about personality assessment because that's what we do as clinical psychologists, but you said a couple of things that that I thought were interesting and I I do want to spend some time talking about emotional intelligence, but I want to just kind of put a, put a bow on our talk about your time in the Bureau. Where the, out of curiosity, was there ever a time where you were in the field working and thought that you were going to die? And if so, how did you handle that? Yes. Um, it was not against a, working against a spy, but when, again, I was a fairly new agent and um, another squad next to me was what organized crime squad and I, um, the, one of the agents there was working undercover, and he needed an arm charm to go with him to a barbecue. And uh, just a date, nothing, no big deal, but it was an afternoon barbecue. So I thought, wow, all these movies I've seen, this is exciting. This is exactly what I want to do. It's why I'm in the FBI. So I left my badge at home, took a fake ID, and went with him to this barbecue. And we got there and everyone was very nice to begin with. And, but these were serious dudes. I mean, these were extortionists, um, occasional murderers, um, drug dealers. It was an organized crime group that this, my, my colleague was trying to infiltrate. And so we were out there and I'm, I'm blonde and I burn easy and it was a barbecue. I went inside to get more sunscreen. And I went into the bedroom where they had put all the handbags and I saw two women going through my handbag. I just tried to pretend all was cool, no big deal. But then two guys followed me in and then they closed the door. And there I was with two very ugly guys and two women who were much better uh, looking at me. And they just started interrogating me about who I was, where I worked, how long I had uh, known what's his name out there. And I, I had a, a very serious uh, kind of come to Jesus moment where I knew I pretty much had to be honest about who I was or I was not going to get out of there unharmed. So I told them everything except my name and my, my true name and who I truly worked for. But I told them I grew up on a ranch in Wyoming. I told them I was bored with, you know, the small town environment. I wanted the challenges of something bigger. I, I mean, and, and then one of the women I think was from Kansas or somewhere. And when I said that, she kind of nodded and said, well, that's why I left too. And so slowly but surely, I gained the trust of those people uh, by being who I was. And in all the time I worked undercover, the only time I seriously got into trouble was when I tried to be somebody I wasn't. And you can slap on whatever name or title you want, but the, the, the important thing is I was. you need to be who you are. Bottom line is I got out of that room unharmed. Uh, and I left the barbecue soon after. A couple of weeks later, I found out, and actually the whole squad found out, that a hit had been put out on the guy I went with, the undercover agent, because he, he just wasn't true. He was trying to be this big, macho guy. And he, it just wasn't true to character. He couldn't carry it off. And that was the big lesson I learned about working undercover. Be who you are. Put any name, use any name you want or any disguise you want. But if you really want to connect with people, 
And that's the difference. I mean, if you're just walking through a, you know, a situation, you don't want to be recognized, it's different. But if you want to connect with people at a deep level, and that's what counterintelligence is all about. If you want to recruit somebody to work for the United States government or to give you information, you have to find ways to connect. And you're right. It's not going to be obvious because they're trained not to trust anyone they meet in the United States. So for them to break it down little by little, they have to see you as a real person, not a robot who's following directions. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. And 24 years later, what made you decide to walk away from the Bureau? Well, the, I actually was a counterintelligence agent for about 20 years. The last four okay. years, I was the uh, spokesperson for the FBI in Northern California, and I loved it. But I was eligible to retire. It wasn't mandatory, but I was eligible. And I wanted to do that. I wanted to do something different. I just knew that there was more out there, a little bit like... Even going back to my days in retail, I knew there was more out there for me or why I left Wyoming. I knew there was more out there. And so that's where I am, where I was. And I'd always wanted to write. And uh, so I started writing and it wasn't perfect at first and the tone wasn't perfect, but I kept at it until I did find my stride. And now I'm, I'm loving it. And it's just a natural extension of who I am. And which book did you write first? I wrote Secrets of a Strong Mind. That is basically talking about uh, the upbringing I had on a cattle ranch and the no-nonsense, no-spoiled, pampered, entitled approach to living that comes from living on a cattle ranch in Wyoming. So... And, and again, that's what the FBI loved, really liked about me. They, they knew it would be a good fit, and it was a good fit. So a lot of it, that is my story from six years old and my first pony named Socks through the FBI Academy, which was pure hell for me, all the way through, um, you know, my time as, an, uh, as a spokesperson in the FBI. So it got, you got the whole package there. So the book itself obviously has stories, your upbringing, lessons that you've learned and, and how you applied them. Are there any specific examples or concepts within the book on what it takes to have a strong mind? Well, I think every one of us inside has that story that will create a strong mind if we don't already have it. And the real challenge is to excavate the significance of our own stories and our own experiences so that we can, we know how to come out on top when times get tough and when things don't go according to plan. I'll give you an example of a failure 
I'm, I'm asked this occasionally, what is the best failure you ever had? And I love to talk, people don't talk about good failures. They talk about good successes, but they don't talk about good failures. So when I'm in the academy, and I'm not a real athletic type, right? So not compared to the folks I was alongside in a way, but I always had a hard time with push-ups. And my coach knew that. And so he made my life miserable because that was his job. That coaches' jobs were to push us into our discomfort zone. Because if they weren't doing that, they weren't doing their job. We had to learn how to live there and how to keep that tension. So it was the, we had an interim fit test. And he made sure, my coach made sure he was the one to count my push-ups. And so he started counting them. I, I do one. He go, okay, one, two, three. He got to my, like my ninth push-up, and he wouldn't count it. He just kept saying nine, nine. And I did that ninth push-up like nine times. And all the while thinking, I don't have what is the strength left to do all 50 push-ups, right? That I finally, finally counted it, and I went on. But I failed that interim fit test, my push-ups. And I mean, there's a lot of different things you're tested on, but one of them was the push-ups, and I failed that part. And I faced a very real possibility of being washed out of the academy. It was very close. <laughs> I mean, they were very brutally honest. They said, you either you know suck it up and make it happen, or you're going home. And that failure caused me, made me, think about what I really did want to do. I knew what I didn't want to do and had that experience. And I, I tasted enough of what I would be doing as an FBI agent to know, you know, I had to be doing something that created value for me, something that created meaning. And this was it. And so I worked my butt off in order to develop the muscles I needed to make those, to, to churn out those push-ups. So I, I ended, I did graduate, but that failure was the best failure I ever had because it made me really think about what was important to me. And it really brought something else to my mind is that, you know, so many of us, when we fail at something, well, we give up and we kind of shuffle along and do something else until we finally succeed at something. And then that's where we stay because we've succeeded there. Not necessarily because it's what gives us value or meaning or where we really want to be, but it's just a nice, safe comfort zone that can over time start to look like a rut. And the difference between a rut and a coffin are the dimensions. Well said. And again, for, but for you, what was really great is you connected your passion to willpower. Essentially, you, you weren't, you got a taste of it. You really wanted to make it happen, and that gave you the resilience to to push through despite failing that push-up test. Absolutely. That's where grit, determination, persistence, that tenacity we were talking about earlier, where it's just that you don't give up. You keep at it until... And the thing is, if it's important to you, you will keep doing it. I mean, a lot of us may get this, or some of us may get in situations where they have to do it. And it's not really because they want to, but because they're compelled by some other reason. But if it's something that really is important to you, you will do what it takes in order to find a way to do what you want to do. Right. And when we talk about willpower, 
there, there's different aspects of that. And then there's also resilience. How do you see those two fitting together? You know, to me, uh, resilience is really, it's, it's, it's taking responsibility. Stop the whining and blaming others and pointing fingers and making excuses for yourself. It's just coming to terms with you are the one responsible for your own life. So if you're resilient and you hit a roadblock, guess what? You're going to be confident enough that you know you can keep going. And I I, I put confidence. I think confidence is probably one of the pillars of resilience. Because if you're not confident and you get pushed down or tripped up or you hit a roadblock, you're just going to do exactly what I was talking about earlier. You shuffle away and do something easier. But if you are confident in your ability, you'll face those fears, whatever they happen to be, and you'll find a way. I, I encourage people. I love it when people have Petri dishes. You know, this thing, this little experiment that they're working on, something in their life where it's new, it's different. They're going to learn something. They don't know if they're going to succeed or not, but they're going to find out. And in that process, they find out more about themselves. Because the last thing you want, and this is one thing I did learn in the FBI, is that when you're faced with the unknown, you need to know how you will respond. You can't simply react or, or hope that you respond in the correct way. You need to know how you will respond when you're facing uncertainty or facing the unknown. And so with resilience, I think building the confidence, going into those discomfort zones, like my, my coach, they, I mean, that was their job, was would have been tempting to just like dislike them so much. And maybe at some level I still do, but I know that was their job. And, 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 and the other thing that goes with this is self-limiting beliefs. And I've, I've done, I've, I think we've all, no matter where we are on that, on the ladder of success, we come up against situations or, or people or whatever, where we're not real sure if we're going to succeed. And a lot of times, it's just these self-limiting beliefs we have. So how to break through those barriers we set around ourselves can be as important as anything. And So that's how I look at, it, at resilience, those components. Having been confident, moving into your discomfort zone, and, and, and moving past your own barriers and your own self-limiting beliefs. So what advice would you give to somebody listening to this that may be having a really difficult time in a relationship or years of self-limiting beliefs and you know failures and disappointments how would you encourage them other than by reading your book to develop their confidence and be able to then have the resilience that you spoke of you know no failure is a mistake unless you don't learn from it you're only stupid if you don't learn from a mistake so too many people i think are afraid to go back and revisit failures past experiences that were negative but they can be a gold mine, an absolute gold mine. Because you, if, once you start mining the significance of your own stories, which is exactly what I was saying earlier, some of those stories are not going to be happy ones. Some of them are not going to be where you turn out looking like a shining star. Mine those experiences, excavate them, and find out, find out what your pattern is. Find out why wow, you reacted this way this time and there was another failure or a disappointment. Gosh, you reacted the same way or maybe you got into it the same way. Uncover your patterns. The, the, you know, the, the best person you'll ever get to know is yourself and the most important person you'll ever get to know is yourself. So take that time. I, I, I just 
think that without that, you are, a lot of us are doomed to repeating the same mistake. And the other thing that I've learned is that um, the way our brain works uh, is not necessary. Our brain works in a way that makes, it will collect information and remember and reflect on information that makes sense to it. So if you have a confirmation bias that you think, you say, you, you say to yourself, I'm going to just, I'm a, a horrible singer or I can't speak in, in public. And so what your brain stores is all information which confirms that belief. So if you have something that happens to you and you try to remember it the way it happened, just remember your memory may not always give you 100% accurate feedback because your brain is going to basically remember those things that happened that confirm the way you feel about yourself. And that's exactly why two people can watch the same event and have totally different recollections of what happened. They've done quite a, they've done quite a few studies on that, actually, where they, they would have rooms of people witness an event and that they're all very different stories. You're exactly right. Absolutely. And so, so that helps researchers like yourself, Dr., um, you know, to just be uh, experts in your field. But for the average person, then you can also use that same information. Think back to why you think you have a barrier, why you have a self-limiting belief. Go all the way back to when you first remembered that being a hindrance to you or an issue. And a lot of times it comes back to our teachers or our parents telling us that we can't do something. But then we, we then all the things that happen in, after that, we just keep you know, loading that up. And by the time we're adults, those barriers can be really thick. No question. Uh, very, very good advice. And I want to jump back to something. It's a concept you mentioned very early on in our recording, but I wanted to come back to it. And you spoke of the importance of emotional intelligence. Can you add on that? Why is emotional intelligence? What is it, first of all, and why is it so important? Well, you know, everybody would define it differently. I'm, I suppose, basically, I, I think experts would agree. It's understanding yourself and understanding others. It's the ability to communicate with others. I don't think any agent I worked with would ever call themselves emotionally intelligent. That's just too airy-fairy. It's too fluffy. I mean, they they see themselves as, as, as more hardcore. But the bottom line is we couldn't do our job unless we could go knee-to-knee, nose-to-nose with people that we're dealing with. And that means building relationships. If I want to recruit a spy, I have to do it face-to-face. I mean, I can collect all kinds of intel uh, technical information, despite what you see on movies or TV, uh, most of it is going to happen face to face, and it's it's the people factor. So if you can't regulate your own emotions, your own thinking, your own behavior, which is what mental toughness is, then how can you present yourself to a total stranger, develop a relationship with that person, and and, and whether you're in sales whether you're in marketing, you're in leadership, or you're a counterintelligence agent. I mean, it's really the same thing where we all need to find ways to develop relationships with people around us. And it gets back to that self-knowledge I was we were talking about earlier with understanding your self-limiting beliefs. I mean, that means you have to get to know yourself. I, 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 I just say, you know, um, lack of awareness of your competition makes you vulnerable. Lack of awareness about yourself makes you stupid. 
And so we all need to smarten up. That's all. And so I, I, the first pillar of uh, mental toughness is emotional intelligence, or as I say, emotional competency. That's right. Emotional competence is something that, that you stated earlier. So once somebody has gained that insight, they become aware of their self-limiting beliefs. They are aware of what their limitations are, their perceived limitations. Where do they go from there to develop toughness? What's the next pillar, so to speak? Well, the next place to go would be, th- th- that is where I think the willpower comes in. And, you know, I- I'm a big believer in, you know, understanding your strengths, understand your weaknesses, understand your weaknesses so you can manage them. You don't need them tripping you up or sabotaging you when you most, uh, when you, when you need that least, you know, I mean, you need to be able to know or to be able to predict when that weakness is going to pop up at you again, self-awareness. So manage your weaknesses, but grow, grow your strengths. So this is where willpower, where you are performance focus. You manage time wisely. You build good habits. You push that limit. You push your limits uh, beyond what you what you thought you could do. And experts have agreed that the best like 4%, that's the tension between what your ability is and what your goal should be to keep pushing yourself. Athletes do this. I mean, in firearms, we did this. You, you just keep pushing yourself, not so much that it discourages you, but 4% is just enough to make you try harder, but not to dishearten dishearten you. So, I mean, those are the kinds of things where that takes willpower. I mean, that is a focus on where your strengths are and where you're going. You understand where your self-limiting beliefs may be, but you're moving forward. You have the grit and the determination to keep moving forward. So we've got the emotional intelligence slash emotional competence. We've got the resilience factor, what's the next pillar? Then we have willpower. And so then I would say the willpower factor. And so the final factor would be attitude. It's that champion mindset. And it's really about how you how you can power this incredible thing called the brain, how you can reprogram it if you need to. You can for neuroplasticity. I mean, we can we can change the way we think about ourselves and the obstacles that we have. Uh, and, and there's just a lot of people, neuroscientists out there who have done amazing research, social psychologists who have done amazing research about positive thinking, the importance of, 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 of changing the way we look at an obstacle. Uh, I always find this so interesting that, you know, we, so we all have a negativity bias. That's natural. That's that limbic brain system. That's the, that part of our brain keeping us safe, right? It's what causes us to fight or flee or freeze. So it's always looking for ways to keep us safe. So negative information gets the brain's attention much faster than positive information. And that's because negative information can be, I mean, for centuries, we were taught since caveman days, we, we were taught to get lunch, not be lunch. And it's that fear mechanism that would trigger, I mean, saber-toothed tiger, I mean, whatever it happened to be. But in today's world, not everything that scares us is a threat to our survival. While negativity is like Velcro, it sticks. Positive, positive information is like Teflon, it slides away, which means we have to think harder about positive information to counter the negative that comes in. So we need 
for every one negative thought, it's going to take five positive thoughts to counter that. It's just that strong. So when we know that, we're, we're educated. We can say, okay, wow, this is something I can do. I mean, I can do this. And it's a tool that you can use. I mean, David Rock, who is a great neuroscientist and he's written some great books, he suggests that we label our emotions. Again, self-awareness, being critically honest with yourself. And if you're feeling jealousy, just name it. Or fear or anger, even if it's an unpleasant, embarrassing emotion even. It doesn't matter. I mean, what are you trying to do, fool yourself? I mean, your brain knows. So simply acknowledge it for what it is. And you keep it from, you keep it in the dark, you try to suppress it, it, it it'll, it'll find a way, it'll just keep growing. And so his suggestion is to just call it for what it is and then move on. The worst thing you could do is enter into, do it, into a discussion with yourself about it. Because then it does, it just starts growing, it becomes this beast in the room. I, I'm familiar with his research and it's it's interesting. You're You're the third guest who's brought up neuroplasticity kind of organically. And I think it's it's such a fascinating concept because the brain is resilient. The brain is capable of creating new experiences and undoing harmful ones. But as you said, it, it those don't form overnight. Bad habits don't form overnight. Negative perspectives don't form overnight. It does take an awful long time to do it. But with dedication and consistency, you can reprogram your neural pathways and have more positive or have a more positive outlook. You absolutely can. And again, it's taking control of your, of your, of your emotions, your thoughts and behavior, rather than letting your mind take over for you. And we've all had that happen. Our mind runs wild. And it's simply having the discipline and the structure, internal structure of being able to say, wait a minute, I know it's going on here. I'm calling it out for what it is. You know, it takes confidence in yourself to do that. I mean, if you're not confident, you've got what it takes to keep moving forward. You're, you're, you're probably going to be cowering behind a rock or something. And my grandmother would kick my butt. I mean, I grew up with her on that ranch. I mean, she, she had ammo on her Christmas list. Believe me, this was a woman who was serious about um, taking responsibility for, your, for what happens to you in life. So, um, and so I'm just encouraging people. You know, I, they need they can. They can do so much. They can do so much more than they think they can. And quickly, if you wouldn't mind touching, I, I know we talked a little bit about Secrets of a Strong Mind. Talk, talk about the second book you wrote. Yes, Mental Toughness for Women Leaders. And that is uh, short uh, chapters, 52 tips, it's for men and women. Basically, I, and, and you know, Dr. Richard, I'd be curious to see what you have to say about this, but the more research I do, the less difference I can find between men's minds and women's minds. I mean, there are some differences. I think we find that women can switch between tasks more quickly, but neither can multitask. Uh, women tend to stay uh, in that part of the brain when there's empathy where, God, where men's brains tend to want to go towards finding a solution. But by and large, we, our brains are the same. So this is a book for both men and women. And I do marry a lot of neuroscience and social psychology in this book to just talk about, um, you know, why we can't multitask, why women aren't better at multitasking than men are, even though they think they are. 
and they're just being told a lie and they're buying into it, which is sort of dangerous. So that's the kind of thing about with this book. And I, it's, a, it's a great read for both men and women. Outstanding. And we're getting close to the end of the show here. Where can people find you? Oh, you know, with a name like mine, all you have to do is type me in. There aren't any others. It's LorraineKwai.com. So www.LorraineKwai.com. My Twitter handle is at LorraineKwai. Facebook is Mental Toughness Center. Uh, It's not my name there. It's Mental Toughness Center on Facebook, my page. And then on uh, LinkedIn, I'd love to see you there. Again, it's my name. So, or Google Plus, or I don't know if I've gotten anything. Those are sort of my main platforms. Perfect. And we will we will link to those in the show notes and in the Daily Helping app, as well as have your books in our resources as well. And before we wrap up, though, as you know, with every guest that comes on, I like to ask them the biggest helping. And that is, what is the, the biggest, single, most important piece of information? If anybody could walk away with listening to this, what would you want somebody to take away? I want them to understand that Mental toughness is believing that you will prevail in your circumstances rather than believing your circumstances will change. Now, they can change. Sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners and a lot of your clients, Dr. Richard, are in situations where it's, it's up to them to make the change. And but that's the, that's the, that's the situation where you can prevail. You have the, what it takes in order to prevail in your circumstances. Outstanding. Thank you so much. And again, all of Lorraine's information, her books will be available in the show notes on the website and in our app. Really encourage everybody to check them out. And thank you so much, Lorraine, for being on the show. And thank each and every one of you who took the time to tune in and listen today. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to the show on iTunes or in the Google Play Store if you're on Android. That's what helps other people find out about this show. Thanks again. And as always, go ahead and do something nice for somebody. Do something special for somebody else. Even if you don't know them, post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.